everyone, and welcome to the Anti-Genocide Coffee Break, a multinational podcast. I am your host, Elisa von Jürgen Forgi, and I am here with my co-host, Irene Victoria Massimino, and we are joined today, actually, by our technical producer, Rafi Zarzatian, who's going to be joining us for a conversation about Germany's colonization in Namibia, um, indigenous issues across the world, and the question of Palestine and the ongoing crisis in between Israel and Palestine. Okay, so we're going to begin, and most of this podcast segment will be spent on news. Irena, do you want to start with um, this sure. this video that you were telling us about um, about education in Germany? Sure. Thank you, Elisa. Thank you. Welcome, everyone, to our podcast. And Rafi, thank you for being here with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you all for having me. It's really, it's wonderful to finally be on the show after being behind the scenes for so long. Yes, you know, that everything, for the audience, everything that you hear has gone through the hands of Rafi. So it wouldn't <laughs> be the same without him. True. I hope I've been doing a good job now that... <laughs> Everyone, I have I, I have a reputation preceding me from my previous editing. So <laughs> yeah, I hope I hope I've been doing a good, good job. You have. I I think it's fantastic. I think our audience uh, is very happy. It's very very happy. So my news today. Well, we've here and I think um, we've been hearing a lot in the last week that Germany has recognized uh, the genocide it committed in Namibia at the beginning of the 20th century. And doing a little bit of research about this, that I think you'll go in depth, uh, Elisa, after me. There is an interesting, I found an interesting article in Deutsche Welle that we will, of course, post in our website, as always, um, about Germany's colonial past and the education they have about it in the present, actually. The title is Germany's Colonial Chapter and Its Effect effects on the present. It's actually a small video, it's a seven-minute video, very interesting, and it's uh, it talks about how colonialism has been neglected in German history, and uh, the, the colonialist, uh, colonialist chapter has been neglected in German history, despite the fact that before World War One, Germany was actually one of the biggest colonial powers in Africa. Um, the the video shows a set of interviews. It's very interesting, very short, but very educational, actually. A set of interviews done to random people uh, who are asked about what they know of the colonial past. And unfortunately, their, answer, their answers are very surprising because they know very little of it. And according also to some professors interview in the video, this is one of the reasons why there is still a lot of ra racism in Germany. Uh, the video also shows a little bit of research on the curricula done uh, on the, I'm sorry, the research done uh, within the curricula, the educational curricula in schools, in elementary schools and also in high school, and how very little information they have on colonialism. And I think uh, this issue with Namibia has brought, again, not only the issue of racism, but also the need to study the past in order to prevent uh, this uh, racist violence in the future. It was very interesting because one of the images of the video shows the, the books that students have in high school. And the books had literally 
two, three pages only. I'm talking about maybe 600, 700 pages books, you know, like they usually right. the kids have the history book. So only six, hmm. five, six pages were on colonialism. And even the information, according to the reported, was very misleading on what what was uh, the the past, the colonial past in, in of Germany in Africa mainly, right? Um, and it showed also the amount of colonies it had and the little knowledge people had, even about the location of the colonies yeah. uh, that Germany had at the beginning of the century prior to the war. So it was very disturbing. Um, it's very disturbing to think that one of the countries where one of the most of the biggest atrocities of the uh, 20th century happened is still on the Nile of another important historical aspect and how this also impacted you know well the Herero genocide is it's considered I think it's considered one of the first genocides <coughs> of the 20th century right yeah uh, yeah of the yeah for a so, long time um people would say the Armenian genocide was the first yes. which just shows you know exactly. what happened in the colonies was really hidden right or, or, or normalized to an extent that um, you know, it's only recently that what happened to the Herero is even considered to be genocide. Exactly. Yeah. So I think I think it's a good step that Germany is recognizing the genocide. Uh, you know, it comes after more than 100 years. Mm. Uh, but still, uh, we can see from I mean, it's a very short video, but it's still, I think, is educational. It points out, I mean, this this important uh, lack of of um, lack of a historical a huge historical perspective of what actually I don't think it only happens in Germany I think it happens in most countries in Europe I remember I had a student of a uh, French of Al Algerian uh, ascent and she mentioned to me that there's very little education also in in France mm. about the atrocities committed in the former colonies like Algeria in this case that I'm mentioning so I don't think it's only Germany right it's just it comes up now because it actually recognized uh, the wrongdoings in in the the genocide and other wrongdoings in in the former colonies so yeah hopefully yeah no please, please. Go ahead. no no i mean hopefully this will i mean this this as is as it is in the media hopefully will bring um changes mm -hmm. in the curricula mm -hmm. so people and also people of, of african descent will feel more recognized more empowered and more included in society as well right and to find yeah. the answers of what the present res racism comes from i mean it's a huge part i mean some people i think are racist just because they're racist but a lot of people <laughs> are racist out of ignorance and and uh out of not knowing who the other is etc and of the past as well so hopefully yeah, it's it'll bring change yeah i hope so that's a, i haven't watched that video yet but i am definitely um, going to going to watch it and we'll we'll as Irena said put it up you know just thinking coming from North America uh, we know nothing I mean we are taught almost nothing in schools about Native American genocides and and slavery and and what yeah. we are taught is really misleading and you know there's um, an effort on the part of the Republican Party to make our curricula even more misleading mm -hmm. in the future. Um, 
do you know, but there are all sorts of every year, you know, you find books, you find on, on social media, people <laughs> notifying that their books, that books that their children are using in school refer to the happy, you know, happy slaves, for example, or um, so it's very, very misleading what we learn here as well. And I think that like in the German case, um, that helps us continue um, with patterns of genocide in our own society against black Americans and Native Americans and people yes. of color more generally. So it's really, it's a very, it's a global Western problem that's coming to terms with with the this specific past of colonialism, imperialism, and settler colonialism. Certainly. You know that you're talking about African Americans. Well, you mentioned, I had some students from... When I usually I teach to different set of students coming from the U.S. here in Argentina, right? Ones are from California, and the others come from uh, New York. And uh, the ones that come from New York, it's very interesting because they have such different backgrounds, and and a lot of them are African Americans actually. And we talk about the right to identity because we yeah. cover the the last dictatorship in Argentina and the consequences. Uh, on the human rights violations. And um, we have here a, a right to identity, right? Individuals because of the disappeared and also mm -hmm. because of the abducted children. We can talk about in another podcast to have a more profound mm -hmm. um, historical uh, talk about our last dictatorship. So the, the right to identity has been established as a very important right for individuals who were abducted mm. and given to families of usually of perpetrators. And I talk to this with my students and when they're uh, African-American students, I tell them, you also have the right to identity. You know, you don't, the, the state has the obligation to at least give you the tools to find out where you're coming from. Because as slaves, mm -hmm. they don't know where they're coming from. Right. They don't know maybe the regions of Africa where they, they were yeah. brought illegally and by force, where they, um, what happened to the relatives, what is the history of the relatives, what was their original name, for example, what was the identity of the persons, what were their beliefs, right? Everything that forms the identity, not only the name, but the religion, the, the creed, the, the, whatever it is, the culture, etc. Mm -hmm. all of that was erased. And I think this is something that going, you know, back to the U.S., the, the U.S. has to, um, more faster than slow, do in order to uh, recognize the, the, the past, yeah. you know? Not only yeah. just say that was slavery, but also give these people the tools, even if it's difficult, of course, because m much time has gone by, but give some tools to try to reconstruct their identity. Mm. That's, I mean, that's a great point. I had never thought about it really in terms of the right to identity in the way that you're describing it, but that's, that's a wonderful, wonderful point. Mm -hmm. And in fact, you know, a state policy that supports that, like a program to help people yeah. trace their roots would, um, would go very far in terms of raising people's awareness of, of how, how central 
slavery was as an institution of our state and how it still continues in these new modes, like now mass incarceration, right? Mm -hmm. Previously, exactly. Jim Crow, right? I mean, there were the, the sort of apartheid-like laws in the United States. So I think it's very important. There's a, there's a kind of incipient movement in the United States to force sort of... Um, truth and reconciliation, mm -hmm. a large-scale yes. truth and reconciliation process. And I think that would be so important. And in fact, it would be great in Germany, too. Uh, yes, a truth and reconciliation for yes. colonialism, mm -hmm. right? Yes, yes because mm -hmm. there are a lot of people uh, in Germany that actually descend from the colonies. There yeah. are actually so, and that continue to feel the exclusion today, yeah. right? Yeah. So, and... There is no acknowledgement of they as who they are, you know, the historical, like individual and collective past of these people. Right, so. exactly. Yeah, I think mm -hmm. that's so important. And then for the wider society, you were mentioning this kind of colonial root of racism. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really true because when you need, you know, when a state and society needs to justify um, violent domination, Mm -hmm. that yeah. gives racism and other kind of very radical forms of other, othering a, a real kind of like hook into mm -hmm. a society to the point that the identity of the dominant peoples becomes reliant on those justifications. And so in the United States, like white supremacy yeah. is going, is, is, I mean, this, this, this malicious diseased way of thinking about identity is not just something that the Nazis and neo-Nazis do, right? It's pervasive. White identity <laughs> is white supremacy. And so mm -hmm. you have all sorts of dominant people in the United States who actually don't have a positive identity. They don't have a healthy identity. They have mm -hmm. this, this diseased form of, of supremacist identity, even mm -hmm. when they try and um, reject it. Do you know, so overcoming, you know, the, the, one of the most interesting things to come out of the last year in the United States and these sort of protests and this uprising that started after George Floyd was murdered by a policeman, right, is, um, you know, is this sort of awareness amongst many white people that they need to deconstruct white supremacy it's in their own minds and hearts. And once you start on that road, you realize how, and I speak as a white American, you realize how deep <laughs> that goes, yes. you know, and how... Mm -hmm. Everything you do, whether you like it or not, is caught up in no. this web of white supremacy and that that mm -hmm. web is really, really harmful and toxic even now. Um, and I think a lot of people don't want to recognize that because it's very painful. It's painful to be in the dominant group in that yes, way. exactly. Where your mm -hmm, life exactly. is contingent on the deprivation of rights of others. Of whether others. you say you're a humanitarian or a human rights activist or anti-racist or whatever it is, the way things are constructed in our society is such that white people are given things that other people are not. And by virtue mm -hmm. of being white, you are taking from others because that's the setup. It's a trap that we're all stuck in, you know? And so part of the anti-racist sort of agenda is to, is, to, is to create a new narrative, right? A way for everyone mm -hmm. to live together with healthy identities. But on the, so, you know, so on the one hand, one, one needs to support identity formation in the, in the groups that are constantly being mm -hmm. attacked like black exactly. Americans and Native Americans. But we also, you know, we also need to make clear that, that, you know, white identity 
needs to be transformed into something that, that people can really take pride in and that really nurtures them not and nurtures them not as plantation owners or as or as the the master race right or as the mm -hmm. the the middle class folks in the suburbs but nurtures them as human beings and as me as members of the the shared human species which um which unfortunately we just don't have and so it goes so deep you know, these processes go mm -hmm. so deep and it'll probably take many generations in the Western world, North America and Europe, right, to overcome. But um, but overcome we must. Right. Because otherwise these can these genocidal tendencies continue, as we saw with Trump, they can very quickly accelerate into actual crimes against humanity, like what we saw at the border uh, with um, Mexico. Right. Exactly. So, Exactly. And I think, well, it, as simple as it sounds, you know, education, if you're denying, well, it's a form of denial, actually, if you're denying access to the truth in from a historical perspective, then there is, it's very difficult to break that. I mean, you mm -hmm. have to start with education. So that's why I thought that small video, short video was so important because it points out there's no education on the colonial past. It's so true. how are you going to break through with this, all of this, uh, all of these issues that you're just, uh, you know, put out so well, Elisa, that, you know, happen in the U.S., but I think replicate in many, many places in Europe yeah, as well. I think certainly. so. Certainly. Yeah, certainly. And we, and we see that uh, uh, that when, for example, with the arrival of refugees, that, right. that, um, oh, that in the, Europe, yeah, in Europe, mm -hmm. in Europe, one sees that mm -hmm. a lot of extreme ec extremists actually reacting mm -hmm. uh, against the arrival of refugees. <laughs> Many Precisely. of them actually belonging to colonies that I mean to countries that were colonies of of uh, all, European almost countries. all like, of them all of them right all almost of them all actually of them. the Middle unless, Eastern ones right. and the African ones yeah. they yes they That's are right. people coming from the former colonies and there is such little knowledge of that I mean so if if we have that denial from from the most elemental education of the individual that it's very difficult to do the change when a person is older one has to do that change and that awareness with younger people i think that's yeah. you know when, when yeah. you build that education that education on equality on peace you know on gender equality as well what you were saying about white supremacy is also what happens with sexism you yeah know? true the supremacy of men yep. is exactly the same and how difficult it is to break that it's so and difficult. i think the person who is in that uh, place of supremacy as white or as a man, etc., I think as long as they acknowledge that they're there and they try their best, I think they have the support of society. I always tell, you know, the people who are my male friends, etc., as long as you recognize and you try your best, I know there are flaws and you will continue on falling into sexism, but as long as the people try eventually will be able to break that exactly Those, uh, yeah mm -hmm. and, and you know I, I try and point out to people that it's not a personal failing unless exactly. you fully embrace it and become kind of obnoxious and and cruel right exactly but it's it's a societal it's problem it's a collective issue it's a collective and so problem recognizing it is a badge of honor in a sense right because yes. at least you're willing to face down 
you know, some of the more noxious inputs into your own identity. I think that's, yeah, I think that's great. Yeah, Rafi, and do help you have others. Some, and help yeah. others, exactly, help yeah. others. Rafi, do you have something to say about this? Oh, yeah, sorry. Um, I just, I had uh, two it, things that I think about a lot in terms of the way that white identity operates uh, within uh, America in particular, but colonial um, colonial countries in general, not just countries that are built on colonies, settler colonial states, but also countries that took part in colonialization. And uh, one of them is that the way that it harms identity of people who are from, uh, like, not, not, it harms all aspects of identity, and it harms culture as well, you know, like it forces these people to assimilate into this amalgamous white blob in order to try to become accepted. Um, you know, like there's one culture that is considered acceptable mm. and anyone who it's possible for them to be accepted into this culture will try. And I think about this a lot as an Armenian American, um, because my family came over uh, at the time when Armenians, uh, like all people from that region, were not allowed to become citizens based on uh, being considered Asiatic. And this caused uh, like an insane amount, of, like a large amount of assimilation into white culture that, that um, effectively erased a lot of uh, very large Armenian communities on the East Coast and also in Fresno, which used to be considered one of the um, Armenian capitals of the world and now has very, very small active Armenian community. Um, and, and it was something that a lot of, you know, Middle Eastern activists say is that they don't want to, like the white supremacy harms them so much um, in that it, it harms their culture and it harms their connection to where they come from and it harms, you know, their identity because they can never be fully accepted, but they keep having to try to try to fit into this white supremacist mold, which then hurts other minorities who aren't able to fit in because part of the way that they can cozy up to white supremacy is by oppressing people who are darker skinned, like black people yeah. and uh, Native Americans. And that's something mm -hmm. that is very painful, like painful to watch, uh, because these people, you know, on the one hand, they're, they are hurt by this white supremacy, but on the other hand, they want to aspire to be like the oppressor. Right. Um, because right. that's the only way that they can get pa power. Um, and something that is often said in the circles I'm in is that we um, don't want to have to assimilate in order to gain equality. Like equality yes, should not be exactly. based on whiteness. It should be just equality should be, you should be allowed to have these different cultures and still be considered equal. You shouldn't have to be considered white to be considered equal. And the second one so was cool. that um, it's interesting to see that the more capitalist states, like the more neoliberal and capitalist states become, the more of um, like the more neo-Nazism and white supremacy rises, um, and it's uh, a way to keep. Uh, I see it, and this is an opinion, but as a way to keep um, any sort of class coalition from coming about, um, no class solidarity, um, because people, uh, you know, they want people to focus on race being the issue, because that's what serves the dominant classes. And uh, part of this is also because when people become so impoverished, and white Americans especially, you see this in America a lot uh, under neoliberalism since the 80s, since Reagan, uh, white people become so impoverished in America and they become ashamed. You know, they feel like they have nothing that they can be proud of. You know, they have no money. They're not able to provide for their family mm -hmm. in the way that the mm -hmm. patriarchy requires them to. You know, their houses are falling apart in many cases. They're from towns that are, you know, made fun of in the majority of America, they're considered rednecks from these very podunk areas, and their only thing that they have that they can cling to 
is this perceived whiteness that they see as pure, mm. right? Mm. And so they can keep saying like, well, I'm poor and I have nothing and my job is awful and I get paid horribly and I get treated awfully and my family has nothing and I have like, you know, no pride in my work and no pride in my home because that has been stripped from me. But I still have this white identity. Mm-hmm. And that kind of breeds white extremism, I think, in this way, where then these people are forced to become these white extremists because they have nothing else Mm -hmm. they have nothing else going for them and it's very violent and once those people become you know once they become these neo-nazis and white extremists it's very sad because you know they didn't have to be that way like you know like there were other options that could have gone if the system offered other options like they could have become other things Mm -hmm. the system offered other options but the systems we have as you guys were saying kind of breeds this extremism And I I think that a lot of that also has to do with the intersection of white supremacy and capitalism. Yeah. As I've been saying, like poverty breeds extremism. That's a, I mean, that's a really good point. And we see that in, um, you know, in genocide prevention, we often look at, um, at people who have been forcibly displaced or whose identities have been stripped from them. Um, either through political or through economic mechanisms as a sort of breeding Mm -hmm. ground and a recruitment ground for radicals. You know, people who are left without any other options uh, to to sort of perform their own dignity as human beings. And, and that sort of seems to me what you're talking about, Rafi, is that, you know, societies can, we're, we all have human dignity inside of us, but we're social animals. We need that to be reflected around us in a sense to even believe that we have it. Like, right? Like we need yeah, someone yeah. to recognize that in us. And yes. if, if, um, if, 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 if that's not recognized in us, um, we can, we can, begin to feel that we don't have it right and to get it back you you grasp at whatever whatever resources are out there for you and if there are no resources except you know somehow some tenuous relationship to a dominant ideology of of supremacy then you might grasp for that you know yeah absolutely that's exactly what i'm saying yeah thank you yeah, no, thank you, Raf. That's really no, important. No, thank you, Rafi. I think, yeah, I, you're, you're, it's, it's great. What you just said, it was fantastic. I think it's also, you know, I thank you very much because it gives an idea of the problems that also are in the U.S. You know, usually the U.S. is perceived just mm-hmm. as Europe, you know. There are two places are perceived as the best places in the world and most people want to immigrate there, etc. And I, I think you br- brought up a great point, not only by connecting, you know, this economic aspect that there is always in genocide and it's usually related, you know, to capitalism. And um, when one thinks of a particular genocide, at least in my view, when I'm thinking of what is happening in Myanmar, one of my first questions is, which country has economic interest in Myanmar for this to be happening right now? This is always my thought, right? Mm -hmm. So you've pointed out from another perspective, but I think it's great. And I think it gives, you know, it enlightens us a lot of what the reality is in the U.S., you know, and about... The, you know, the white supremacists actually becoming victims of the own system, you know, their mm-hmm. own, of their own the system. system, 
of their own system you know they're they're becoming very poor and they live in horrible you know conditions and that you know the same white supremacist system has brought you know to them so it's Mm -hmm. uh it's an interesting per- perspective and also because you're so young and, you know, you see these in such a profound way that hopefully, you know, there's hope for the future that people like you will, you know, be able to do some changes and think of the U.S. what it was, you know, maybe with all the flaws, <laughs> of course, and all the difficult, very and terrible external interventions the U.S. has done. There, There is another idea of what the U.S. was, you know, during the Marshall Plan, etc. So there, there was a different, um, a different country back then. But I think um, maybe there is hope for the future with people like you and your deep analysis. I think that's a very, very deep analysis. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I I felt like I was um, kind of going a lot of places and going nowhere. So I appreciate, I appreciate it. Thank, thank you both for the kind words. No, no, that was great. And I I have a lot of hope for your generation. So it's also a burden I place on your generation. But but I I do think you guys see things more clearly and more fairly and, and in a more productive way than previous generations, at least in the United States. But Irena and I also often talk about how when we meet young people from from your generation around the world, they're talking about very similar things and they're doing so in a very similar way. And they're also mm-hmm. leading protests. So in Palestine and Myanmar, in Iraq, you know, they are very courageously leading protests that have a very actually a very peaceful message, but a peaceful message that is um, is also a message of justice. Right. Mm-hmm. So it can. Mm-hmm. So it's it's transformative. Right. The transformation needs to happen. But through that transformation. Right. The ultimate goal is peace. And I just see that everywhere. Um, and there are a lot of vested interests in the older generations that are trying to keep your generation at bay. But I feel like you guys are like a tsunami. And at some point, the tsunami may pull out and you don't see it. But at some point, that wave is going to come rushing in. (laughs) There's just too many of us. There are a lot. Yeah, it's good. There's There's just too many. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Well, yeah, so, you know, along those lines, right, of, of transformation, there's a there's an article in um, the online magazine called The Conversation, uh, written by Reinhard Kössler, who is a professor at the University of Freiburg in Germany, and Henning Melber, who is a professor um, at the University of Pretoria in South Africa, on this subject of German colonization um, that in, and, and the recent quasi-apology that Germany gave for the Namibian genocide or for the Herero genocide in present-day Namibia um, that, that critiques it, right, uh, as being not enough, right, and being seriously problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, and in large measure, this goes to the question of, you know, these kind of baby steps that some nations are taking towards accountability, right? That that still somehow manage to avoid the major issues and that manage to avoid social transformation, right? The necessary social transformation. Um, so the exactly. title of this article is Namibian Genocide, Why Germany's Bid to Make Amends Isn't Enough. And I'm just going to read little, just short parts mm-hmm. of it. 
the recent joint declaration of the Namibian and German governments on dealing with the 1904 to 1908 genocide marks the first time a former colonial power has officially offered an apology to another country for state-sponsored mass crimes. The agreement stipulates that Germany will pay 1.1 billion euros for development projects in Namibia over the next 30 years. Some pundits consider the accord a potential template for efforts towards post-colonial reconciliation for other former colonies and colonial powers. We recognize that this is the first time that a former colonial power has admitted an historical injustice on a state-to-state -state level, but the negotiated compromise displays glaring shortcomings in being overly cautious to avoid any legal implications for Germany that may create a precedent. It also shows that the limited participation of representatives from the Namibian communities most affected by the genocide is hampering true reconciliation. Um, and they elaborate a bit on this. They write that after the negotiations that resulted in this joint declaration were concluded, the German foreign ministry issued an official statement it stressed that the recognition of genocide did not imply any legal claims for compensation. <laughs> Instead, they wrote the substantial, or the, pardon me, the German foreign ministry wrote, the substantial program for reconstruction and development um, is a gesture of recognition. That's the quote for the wrongdoings by Germany. And so the writers, the, the authors of this article write, one wonders if gestures are indeed an adequate form of recognition. Yeah. Given the dimensions of the crimes committed then, more empathy would be an important signal. Such formal language can be very humiliating and hurtful. I think that's an important point. Reconciliation needs more than material compensation. The devastating demographic and socioeconomic consequences of genocide can never be compensated. Significantly improving the well-being of the descendants of the victims would be an important material aspect. And this requires more than the payments offered. Um, so is, in addition, an adequate expression of remorse in recognition of the historical injustice. So here's what the joint declaration states in terms of um, mm -hmm. remorse, right? So the Namibian government and the Namibian people accept Germany's apology and believe that it paves the way to a lasting mutual understanding and the consolidation of a special relationship between the two nations. However... Uh, the Herero peoples, as well as other groups in, in mm -hmm. Namibia who were affected, like the Nama peoples, were not adequately consulted. And so this joint declaration does not have a great deal of legitimacy. And the authors write that without consultation and legitimacy, the two governments here declare what the Namibian people are supposed to accept. Notably, even the representatives of three Ova Herrero royal houses participating in the final round of negotiations and indicated on their return home that they would not endorse the suggested agreement. So here's an agreement being made about a genocide committed against a people whose present day leadership doesn't even accept the agreement. Um, I yeah, they're not it. included. They're not included, right? They're so not included. How does that even make sense, right? 
So here to continue, the authors continue through a long and halting process. Germany has ultimately made significant progress in facing up to the atrocities of the Holocaust of European Jews during World War II. Its remembrance is now claimed as part of, the Ger of Germany's DNA. The Holocaust Memorial in central Berlin does that for Jewish victims. And Germany has reached a measure of reconciliation with neighboring France and to a lesser extent with Poland for Germany's crimes during that war. Germany's colonial atrocities should also enter public memory. This goes to the video you were talking about, Irena. Public mm -hmm. commemoration of the victims of numerous crimes committed under German colonialism, such as those in Namibia, is long overdue. If there is a lesson to be learned from these actions, it is that bilateral agreements between governments cannot replace reconciliation between the people of the two countries concerned. The descendants of the victims on the Namibian genocide of the Namibian genocide are traceable, but what about the perpetrators? As the Namibian activist and author Jepta N. Nguheremo has stated, President Steinmeier should deliver his apology to the Bundestag for the German people to understand and learn about their untold yes. genocide. So mm -hmm. far, this vital perspective is totally missing. So I think that's a really, they raise some really important points about what reconciliation actually means. Mm -hmm. And as they point out, this government-to-government -government bilateral negotiation that doesn't include a larger transformative process between the two peoples involved um, really doesn't go very far, in fact. And uh, makes the 1.1 billion euros, which is a mind-bogglingly large amount of money when you say it, right, um, sort of, in a, in a sense, a cheap, you know, I, I don't want to sound too critical, but really kind of a cheap gesture, to use the word that well, the foreign ministry used, Like a right? once-and-done payment well, a one in a off, way. A one-off, a one-off, yeah. right? Yeah. Like it's paying a debt, like, you've, like you missed a car payment, and so you're paying it with the interest, and then you're done. Right, yes. precisely. Like you know? cleaning, yeah, it's a way of like cleaning your conscience without actually doing any restorative work. Exactly. exactly. And, you know, when one thinks of the consequence, the long-term consequences of genocides, they are, it's impossible to make an, a, a monetary uh, sort of discrimination or a monetary conclusion about them. The consequences have a lot to do with the development of the country as well. I mean, who knows, and probably is the case, if the genocide committed by the Germans, you know, prevented Namibia from growing and developing itself as a more rich and more equal and inclusive nation right. in many aspects. So I, I think, mm -hmm. you know, it reminded me of, of the Argentine one war with Paraguay. And we actually, I think it was a genocide committed by Argentina against mm. the Paraguayan people and that we have not formally recognized, of course, like most countries. And that war that was a genocide prevented Paraguay from, it was one of the most developed countries in the region, in wow. South America, and it prevented the country from, you know, being much more, uh, have a, a better growth, right? A much more, much better. And, uh, and for many years it was underdeveloped. Fortunately, now it's, it's economically growing a lot. But the impact of that war and that genocide is was huge. So we, I mean, just that 
and particularly not including the people that actually suffered the genocide in right. this makes one think what is really behind this exactly is this a true recognition or there is some economic interest behind mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. now mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. what happens with france you know right. they're saying it actually like what happens with France and the recognition of the Rwandan genocide is because, you know, they have economic interests now. Exactly. And, well, maybe it's a good time to give an apology and look good so we can reestablish economic uh, profit, like a third wave colonialism, I would call it. Wow. Mm -hmm. A third mm -hmm. wave of colonialism paved through apologies for genocide. Oh, my God. I don't want to like if that's there, not you know, dystopian... I, I, I agree with you, though. If that's not dystopian, no, I agree absolutely. Also, I mean, it's yeah. sort of like I mean, this is like, it's sort of like Turkey that has recently seems to be on some kind of charm. Um, what do you call that? A kind of uh, charm offensive, right? In recognizing other genocides, do you know? In talking about the horrors of the Holocaust, in in portraying itself as diverse and multicultural. You know, all the while, or in the name of denying the Armenian genocide, the genocide against Christians under the Ottoman Empire, the ongoing genocidal policies in the South Caucasus region, you know, its genocidal approach to Kurds and Kurdish identity, not just in eastern Anatolia, but also in Syria and Iraq. The list goes on, do you know? And, yeah. and it's, it's like... Acknowledging certain genocides have has become a way of re distracting from other genocides, yeah. right? Or other power dynamics mm -hmm. that are that are very destructive. Mm -hmm. Totally. And now, it also distracts from the ongoing colonial um, like policies that these Western states have to yeah. this day. So, like, they they'll apologize for the ones that they did in the past. But they're not going to apologize about not making the COVID vaccine open source that all people in Africa can manufacture themselves. You're right. on your own for that one, right? Or like right. Or for just for exporting all of these resources and exploiting labor so mm -hmm. that they can just leach the resources from these impoverished countries. So they won't apologize for that, but we'll give you some money and try to look good like we're not doing these things anymore. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Absolutely. It's really true. Yeah. I mean, it's really true. <laughs> this is this is why this is one of the reasons I love the way our Iraq project focuses on the grassroots, right? And we we want we want an integrated approach that also involves political leaders and economic leaders. Yeah. Obviously, you can't exclude anyone. Any, you know, genocide prevention can't be itself an exclusionary um, activity, right? You don't want to reproduce exactly. the problem in your preventive pre preventative mechanisms, but um, you know the the integration of the grassroots into the discussion is really really important because that's where the staying power is. That's where the transformative power is. States are always going to behave in these cynical ways, exactly. Um, you know, and so whenever exactly. right, they have in a way they have that's their nature of them. Yeah, imagine that the I mean the representatives of the of the Herero community are not uh, they do not agree with the this statement. Right. That's actually excluding them. Exactly. I mean, 
it's excluding them directly. How will they, you know, how, how is that any, I mean, any recognition and also any prevention for the future? These people do not agree with it. They will not endorse the statement. Exactly. And yet they do it. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. It's I just, mean, it's harmful. In a sense, yeah, they're creating resentment amongst the descendants yeah. of this genocide, of, which of killed victims, 80%, yeah. an estimated 80% yeah. of the Herrero people. I mean... This was not a small-scale genocide. This no, was... Which is, I think, the biggest, right? The biggest ethnicity of Namibia or... I, oh, you know, I, don't I actually re- don't know. I, if I it was then, either. I don't know. I don't... Because mm-hmm. there are a few, quite a few. Yeah, so. exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, yeah it's so huge. It's huge. Mm-hmm. Well, it's on huge. that note, we can move on to indigenous issues, right? No, you know, and I was thinking this exact same issue is reproducing on yeah. the other news that I brought today <laughs> about recently right at the actually in the month of May at the beginning of the month of May president um, Manuel uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador from Mexico apologized to the Mayan people for historic abuses uh, and this is brought uh, this particular case by the BBC it's on the news on the BBC we will upload it And um, I'll just read briefly that Mexico's president has apologized to the indigenous Mayan people uh, for abuses committed against them over the five centuries since the Spanish conquest. Mm. Also, the Mm. Mayan people suffered a lot uh, during uh, Guatemala's genocide. So he said, it's quoted in in the article, uh, he referred mainly to the uh, case word from 1847 to 1901, a revolt in which around 250,000 people are believed to have lost their lives. And he said, um, we offer the most sincere apologies to the Mayan people for the terrible abuses committed by individuals and national and foreign authorities in the conquest during three centuries of colonial domination and two centuries of an independent Mexico. Hmm. Up to that point, this is, you know, this was good. Uh, Actually, when Manuel López Obrador um, got into office as president, he requested Spain for an apology. We have to remind our audience that Spain has never apologized for any of the crimes committed and it was actually the biggest colonial power in the Americas. Um, all of South America, except for Brazil, and an enormous amount of Central America was under the Spanish crown that mm-hmm. has never apologized for the 300 years ruling the region. So anyway, so up to then, it looks great. However, and this is always however, <laughs> the timing, as the BBC um article says was also uh, will also be met with some skepticism there's just a month before vital legislative and municipal elections it's actually occurring now in mexico and president lopez obrador continues to push forward with his pet project of the Tren maya a tourist train which will round through a region called the riviera maya despite overwhelming local opposition. So on the one hand, uh, President Manuel López Obrador is apologizing for what foreign authorities and also national authorities did during, again, this is, you know, settler colonial countries. So during the independence or the time 
from the independence on the responsibility of national authorities to what occurred to indigenous people. So on the one hand, we see this as a good. It's great that they apologize yeah. and hopefully this will be followed with public policies to incorporate um, uh, indigenous people in the local life, the recognition of their language, etc., which is actually recognized in Mexico, but their involvement in public office, etc., the uh, access to education, access to proper jobs, equality in general terms, right, on the one hand. But on the other hand, he continues to push with an economic project. In this case, it's a tourist project. Riviera Maya is one of the most touristic places in Mexico. Even if the local communities of the Mayan people are disagreeing with this particular project, right? Despite, as it says, overwhelming local opposition. So one thinks, again, what is this? Is this a sincere apology? Is this coming as an apology that would maybe try to buy the consent of the Mayan people, and I say buy in between quotations, yeah. uh, try to buy the consent for this particular economic project, or what are the reasons that, um, you know, unfortunately something as important as an, apolog as an apology shouldn't be um, given and taken in such a, seems, a light manner, right? I mean, this is the beginning of a healing process that is accompanied by other issues, other things that could be positive, but that is also also in the in the middle of a very controversial um, economic uh, uh, business or oh. economic project. Wow. I mean the oh. yeah, the similarity to what we just discussed in Namibia exactly. is is shocking, isn't it? You know, and and what's so upsetting it really is that to make an apology for 400, 500 years of genocide um, at the same time as one is supporting economic initiatives that further erode, that are, number one, resisted and not ag agreed to by, by the indigenous community that you're speaking to in your apology, but then also is part of the developmental process that has been eroding Mayan identity and destroying Mayan identity over these 500 mm -hmm. years. It just reinscribes right. the very colonial economic dynamic that it says, that the apology says it's addressing. You know, and it's the same with with Germany's apology in Namibia without, exactly. you know, without some kind of negotiation with the actual descendants of of the persons who were victimized by the genocide. It's just a reinscription of the colonial fiat, that colonial mm -hmm. dynamic um, that's unilateral and abusive. And that, you know, exactly. sets the stage for genocide in the first place. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, mm, it's very upsetting. So, yes, one wants to, as you're saying, Irena, one wants to sort of cheer these things on because they do hold within them the potential mm -hmm. to lead to deeper reforms along the lines that you were suggesting, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe at least they can be used by the communities themselves to push for that kind of political reform. Exactly. Right? Mm -hmm. but, uh, but in and of themselves, you know, they seem quite noxious. 
this is going on, and this will lead to another one of our uh, our our uh, discussions, but this is going on also in Canada, where mm -hmm. there are some efforts to reconcile with First Nations, um, and yet there's strong support for different pipeline initiatives that are resisted by the First Nations because of the destructive environmental and social impact that they'll have on First Nation communities. So it's it's really... It's quite something. And it, it, uh, this goes back to, Rafi, something you said about, you know, the importance of capitalism in all mm -hmm. of these discussions mm -hmm. and how difficult it is to really engage in restorative practices, like sincere restorative practices after genocide. Well, if you're, you know, if you're accepting the same economic model mm -hmm. um, that set the stage for and supported the genocide up to the present day. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I'm going to, we can continue that discussion with a discussion of Canada, right? So, <laughs> as we know, in the last week, there was a mass grave of 215, an estimated 215 children found in Canada um, near one of the Canadian boarding schools that uh, First Nations children were forced into as part of this long structural genocide mm -hmm. in the North American context. And so this is an article from Al Jazeera written by Jillian Kessler Damour. And the title is Canada, this, this one unmarked grave is what genocide looks like. And mm -hmm. so this op-ed is, is responding to, um, to the official declaration a few years ago after a nationwide or a national commission um, researched these boarding schools, right? An official declaration that Canada had committed cultural genocide. And then there was mm -hmm. controversy over the use of the term cultural genocide instead of simply genocide. And so genocide. That, con that controversy goes in so many different directions. But... Um, but one aspect of it, right, is is uh, is this question of um, you know whether or not cultural genocide is some softer form of genocide, and what this op-ed is suggesting is no, this is the hard form of genocide. We have mass mm -hmm. graves uh, with with you know over, with hundreds of children's remains in them, right. Um, and they're suggesting that it is genocide. So they start with this a heartbreaking quote um, from a child survivor of this particular school. They would just start beating you and lose control and hurl you against the wall, throw you on the floor, kick you, punch you. That is how Geraldine Bob, a survivor of the Kamloops Indian Residential School, described her experience at the facility in the Canadian province of British Columbia, where the remains of 215 indigenous children were recently found in an unmarked grave. Bob's wow. testimony was shared by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada, um, which in 2015 determined that Canada had committed cultural genocide by forcing more than 150,000 indigenous children to attend residential schools across the country between the 1870s and the 1990s. 
The system intended to assimilate indigenous children into Canadian society. This is something you were talking about, Rafi, mm -hmm. this push towards assimilation. assimilation. And eliminate what state officials at the time described as an Indian problem. Children were forcibly separated from their parents and siblings, beaten for speaking their indigenous languages, and suffered rampant malnutrition, physical violence, forced labor, and sexual abuse. The discovery of the children's remains in Canada's westernmost province on Thursday has reopened persistent wounds for First Nations Métis and Inuit, especially residential school survivors and their families. But indigenous advocates say it is only the tip of the iceberg. And across the country, long-standing calls for government action are growing louder. Indigenous families, and this is a quote, had said for years and years that they knew there were unmarked graves, that they knew there were all these children missing, said Pamela Paul Mater, a professor and chair of indigenous governance at Ryerson University in Toronto. <laughs> this one unmarked grave of the many that are out there is exactly what genocide looks like in this country. Paul Mater told Al Jazeera. And until we get to the truth, until we bring all of these children home, until we stop engaging in the actions that lead to the deaths of indigenous peoples, the genocide continues. So I love that quote from this academic. I think that is a fabulous and powerful quote. And, uh, and indeed, <laughs> I just want to second her, her opinion there. No, it's it's fantastic. And I'm wondering, you know, my question is, I wonder if the government will now take action into this and actually start looking for the mass exactly. graves. Exactly. Exactly. What will they do? You right. know, because I'm sure they know where they are or they have a clue of where the mass graves are, etc. Yeah. But they should. Again, we go back to that right of identity, you know, all yes. of these disappeared people that right. are like banished from the face of the earth and nobody cares about them. And it's just not, you know, I'd like to say that it's not just, you know, remains bones of children, it's people, you know, it's right. different mm -hmm. children, it's identities, it's names, it's histories, it's a future that was cut by this, by this genocide is so much mm -hmm. behind so i i wonder what the government will do after this i don't know i haven't mm -hmm. i haven't heard anything have you of what if I there was a public before statement our, yeah i looked before our um before our podcast recording today and and uh their prime minister has come out with a public statement condemning this and expressing yeah. embarrassment over canada's history mm -hmm. uh but did not state that there would now be an underta a nationwide undertaking to investigate all the other graves, mass graves. Although that, I did read that that is what the First Nations, Metis and Inuit peoples are demanding now. And mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. I hope that Canada will do that. And I hope that the U.S. will follow suit. Canada's mm -hmm. ahead of mm -hmm. the U.S. in terms of these recognition issues. Mm -hmm. um, but we had boarding schools as well. And they have also have yet to be um, fully accounted for. And I imagine the United States has its own mass graves mm -hmm. all over the country connected to boarding schools, but also connecting to massacre sites that have not been properly um, examined. Do you know, there's one, I wrote down a little note on this article, there's one in uh, 
that was found, something called the Arthur G. Dozier School for Boys. It was a reform school, so it was supposed to help wayward boys reform and integrate into dominant society. But like most reform schools, it simply became some nightmarish place of, that of in the atrocity US? in the U.S. This was in the okay. state of Florida. Yeah. Okay. Um, and it operated from around 1900 way up to 2011. So oh nine years ago, wow. it stopped. Oh, wow. And between 2012, so a year after it was closed down by the state, and 2019, 75 bodies of children were oh, found wow. on the site in mass <gasps> graves. Um, and three times as many black children were found as white children in those mass graves. And in fact, they were somehow able to determine that many of the black children who died were not even recorded as having been there, right? Or having died. They were completely just disappeared, Irena, disappeared. the term that you used. Uh -huh. Mm -hmm. Whereas with the white children, they seem to be a little more careful about recording the death. Um, but, you know, I just think there are so many sites like that in these settler colonial nations like my own mm -hmm. that, that have to be examined. And I think yes, what we're yes, all yes. going to discover, you know, Americans will say, U.S. Um, citizens will say, um, well, we all live on, you know, Indian land. Right. So we all yes. live on stolen land. But I, yeah. you know, I think what we're going to end up realizing is that we're all living on a cemetery, that we're living yes. on mm -hmm. bones, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and that's exactly. that's the next step is to realize yes. that that these settler colonial states are just big mm -hmm. cemeteries. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Big sites of mass atrocity. Hmm. I hope there is a, I, I really hope there is a response, you know, from the government in this, in Canada, at least. Me too. Me Slowly too. in the rest of the countries, but I mean, at least in Canada, because this was, this made it to the news everywhere. It did. Yeah, yeah. it did. It was Hopefully all over. this is like a watershed moment. You know, those, the, yeah. we were talking yeah. with, with Maung Zarni when he was with us yeah. about these watershed moments and yeah. how the... Yeah. The Tatmadaw, the Myanmar military will never be able to regain its its reputation yeah. after exactly. it began to fire on pro protesters that were yeah. not ethnic minorities. Um, a very interesting point. Right. Yeah, so good. maybe this is yeah. a watershed moment. And maybe, you know, George Floyd last year was a watershed yeah. moment. It's very depressing. Moment. You know, these these wonderful moments of um, unity you know, at least amongst a certain segment of the population after mass atrocities are committed or discovered tends to peter out after a certain amount of time. And, yes. you know, there isn't the same organizing around it. And so it can feel like one never makes progress. But uh, hopefully, hopefully we're starting yes. to make some progress. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hopefully. Yeah. So Rafi... You have related, yes. you have some related um, news, but this time in Palestine. I do, yes. Uh, still uh, regarding indigenous people, but this time uh, indigenous people in the Middle East. Yeah. Um, we're <laughs> jumping all over. Um, so I have two pieces of news. 
Uh, the first one is uh, in the both of them are in the Middle East. Die. The first one is by Mustafa Abu uh, Senina. I uh, apologize for butchering that name if I did. <laughs> um, I'm sure I did, but um... I butcher names on this program all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, it's a blanket apology. We're dealing with the entire world, you know, and so we hope to get better as we go along. God willing. But um, So this article title is Israel Detains More Palestinian Citizens as Arrest Campaign Enters the Second Week. Um, and this is an article regarding the uh, earlier uh, arrest campaign that has been taking place in Israel over the past few weeks that has been titled by the Israeli government Operation Law and Order and has been intended to penalize those who have been taking part in demonstrations against mm. settler violence, including peaceful demonstrations such as sit-ins. Um, so, so the subtitle, like the subheader is around 1,700 Palestinians citizens of Israel have been arrested since Israel lost law, launched law and order in May, says group. Wow. Um, and the text is as follows. Uh, on Monday, Israeli police arrested more than six Palestinian citizens of Israel, the latest roundup in a campaign that has seen 1,700 Palestinians picked up since early May, according to a committee monitoring the situation. Six people were arrested in Kafir Kana, a Palestinian town in Israel's north, while as an as yet known uh, unknown number of Palestinians were taken into custody in the northern towns of Arara and Ara, according to local media. Video footage circulated on social media showed Israeli military police attacking Palestinians on Sunday in Arara. Middle East Eye could not independently confirm the footage's location and date. The arrests are part of the Israeli police's mass arrest campaign called Law and Order, which began on the 24th of May after two weeks of protests in mixed cities against Israeli settlement policies in the occupied East Jerusalem neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah and the bombardment of the Gaza Strip. Uh, the Arab Emergency Committee, which was formed in the wake of the protests in early May, said it has documented that in addition to the arrest of 1,700 Palestinians who hold Israeli citizenship, there have been 300 related cases of assault. Mm. Um, this article goes on and it gives more examples, but I just wanted to um, give an update uh, with the first half of the article. And I do want to note that many of the people who have been arrested by the uh, Israeli police, at least in the dozens of numbers, have been children um, older than 11 and younger than 17. Wow. And uh, Israel is the only recorded country in the world that uh, automatically um, tries children in military courts. So all um, children arrested by the Israeli security forces are tried automatically in military courts. Wow. Um, and uh, so that uh, that was um, the first update I wanted to leave with. Uh, and I wanted that to uh, bring more of a context to the second article on why, you know, rising uh, discussions have come about uh, the possibility of a one state solution in Israel and a lot of Palestinian mm -hmm. activists, especially have been calling for a one-state solution. And this is a good article by Ahmed Youssef in the Middle East Eye, titled Israel-Palestine, One-State Solution is the Path Forward. In the wake mm -hmm. of the latest Gaza massacre, it is time to shift the conversation towards a single binational state where all are treated equally. And I wanted to read this one because there's a lot of misinformation that has been circulating, especially during mm -hmm. this past outbreak yes. of fighting yes. about uh, about uh, outbreak not of necessarily fighting but of bombing and um oppression by the israeli settler mm -hmm. forces um 
about what a what a call for a one state solution would entail. Mm-hmm. So this is the article. Uh, it says uh, the Gaza ceasefire had barely come into effect before Israeli forces had again stormed Al Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem, a familiar cycle that has gone on for decades. The only thing that may end these incessant infractions would be a decision by Israeli leaders to genuinely protect those under their care rather than to work towards an impossible Zionist dream. They need to understand that enough is enough. With each onslaught, the false narrative of righteous self-defense is laid ever bearer. If Israel's right-wing extremists don't come to realize that Palestinians are not a subservient people, nor will they disappear amid colonization, then the country will continue to exist in a cycle of instability, apprehension, and social discord. Palestinians in the occupied West Bank and the besieged Gaza Strip have demonstrated for more than seven decades that they will not capitulate, and those evicted or expelled Mm -hmm. from the countries will not give up on their right of return. They do not need foreign armies to bolster their resolve. While maintaining this level of resistance is exhausting, the alternative, simply accepting Israeli hegemony, is not an option. Palestinians have predominantly chosen a path of death or liberty. Lest we forget what caused the latest escalation, it was a dual-pronged assault on Palestinian existence. Israeli forces raided Al-Aqsa Mosque before denying worshippers their religious rights for weeks. Sorry, pardon me. uh, After denying worshippers their religious rights for weeks and protected settlers who have been forcibly evicting Palestinians from their homes in Shikshara. The Hamas rockets fired towards Tel Aviv came only after the Israelis were given ample opportunity to withdraw from the mosques. Israel's latest assault on Gaza, branded as Operation Guardian of the Walls, reflects the state's attempt to once again paint itself as innocent. Since 2002, Israel has branded its military campaigns with a slew of schizophrenic names, defensive shields, summer rains, hot winter, cast lead, pillar of defense, and protective edge. Notwithstanding the bizarre nomenclature, the casualty count has been consistently been lopsided. And even before these onslaughts, Israel has dec- a decades-long history of colonialism, military aggression, and financial strangulation. In the latest onslaught, more than 200 Palestinians were killed and hundreds more injured, but Palestinians know that such numbers matter literally to Israeli officials, except as tools for the like of Justice Minister Benny Gantz, who wears them with pride. In 2019, Gantz ran a campaign ad that boasted the killing of 1,364 quote-unquote terrorists in the 2014 Gaza war. I would like to mm-hmm. note this is not in their article itself, but um, the vast majority of the people killed in the 1,364 number were not militants whatsoever and were instead civilians. Mm. Palestinians this month commemorate the 73rd anniversary of the Nakba. We can draw parallels to Deir Yassin and other massacres remembered now only by those willing to dirty their fingers by flipping through the pages of history. Journalists did not write accounts revealing Zionism complacency back then, and most are not risking their careers by doing so now. Western media channels meekly profess objective journalism by quoting or interviewing both sides in the quote-unquote conflict, seemingly oblivious to the fact that Palestinians are disproportionately suffering amid severe Israeli Mm. reparation. In the latest indiscriminate attack on Gaza, which is among the most densely populated places on Earth, Israeli bombs destroyed residential apartment buildings, media offices, healthcare facilities, roads, and other key infrastructure. Among the dead were more than 60 children, and thousands more people have been displaced. Now that the drones and sirens have been silenced, there will be more discussion around potential solutions. The two-state option is frankly no longer viable. As Haaretz columnist Gideon Levy once aptly noted, no Israeli uh, government, regardless of political party, has ever had the slightest inclination of implementing a two-state solution or ending the occupation, with the Oslo Accords functioning as yet another delaying tactic. Hmm. A single binational state where everyone is treated as an equal, however, is entirely feasible. 
And such a shift would surely be welcomed by the people of Gaza, the occupied West Bank, and Jerusalem. Moving in this direction will be difficult, requiring leaders with vision and determination. But if the oppressive Soviet Union could be dissolved, then if apartheid South Africa could be unified, then Israel and Palestine could certainly be set on a new path. Hmm. Is this proposition outlandish with little real hope of materializing? Perhaps again, in this age of citizen journalism with social media revealing events as they unfold, and with the ever-increasing number of young Israelis realizing that they have been lied to, Israeli society may yet force the country's leaders to work for peace rather than to instigate war. That is, um, that is the end of that article there. Wow. It's very interesting. You know, I, I don't feel um, knowledgeable enough to give an opinion on the one state solution. But it does, you know, when I was in 2015 in, in, in Israel and Palestine, some um, Eastern uh, Jerusalemites, which are majority of them are, are uh, Palestinian Arabs, uh, were telling me of this, of this, uh, the possibility of a one state solution as the one that would be um, the the most um, I wouldn't say available. I don't think that's the right word. But anyway, the most feasible, maybe right? Feasible, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. In this Likely context, happening. Yeah. Yes, because yeah. the I mean, when one looks at the map of you know from the partition now, what is remained to Palestinians is literally nothing. Almost, mm -hmm. it's right. just small little islands of land yeah. disconnected from one another. But I think I, I was thinking of quite a few points that, you know, when we bring a Palestinian, we should ask in this one state solution is, well, I guess it would facilitate the right to return, right? Mm -hmm. As, as mm -hmm. the yeah. land of those who were, you know, the land of what now is Israel, uh, some of the land of what now is Israel belong to Palestinians, so they would be able to go back to their land. But, you know, the problems would be like what the, the also like how to do that, right? Because they would mm -hmm. be it would be a totally mixed state with, you know, 73 years of confrontation, actually. Mm -hmm. And one would have to heal that. And then what would happen with the history, right, of Palestinians? Because it does look like um, the, the state of Israel has tried to erase the identity of the Palestinians in that area. So they would have to acknowledge the existence of mm -hmm. the Palestinians prior to the existence, right, of the, of the state of Israel. Then also another problem is the settlers, you know, the level of mm -hmm. violence of the settlers. Like what, you know, what what would the, be the impact but on the other hand it's impossible to um to to ask the settlers to leave i think i don't know i mean it's like half a million settlers actually in the area of what is supposed to be palestine after the partition and then you know there should be equality of rights because there are palestinian arab israelis living yeah. today in in israel with israeli citizens and they're not given their second class citizens they're not given the given the same rights so anyway i'm thinking of all these issues that would come up and yeah. as you said rafia or the article says at the end if you know if the soviet union or germany you know was united uh, Eastern Western Germany and also apartheid South Africa. So I hope there is 
um, a possible solution to this such long conflict. Yeah. Gosh, me too. Yeah. It's yeah. going to take, I, I mean, the, the author also said it's going to take some kind of visionary leadership, strong yes. leadership, courageous leadership with a new vision of, of the future. And that unfortunately doesn't seem to exist in the new government that was just formed in Israel, right? So it looks like... On the contrary, they, the uh, they, contrary. they want to reinforce the status quo. Yeah. And um, they have expressed multiple times their utter hate, like not even just distaste or dislike, their hatred for Palestinians and Palestinian identity. Well, they deny um, it, right? So Naftali Bennett, the new PM, has said that the descendants of the refugees should be absorbed into the countries where they currently reside and will not be able to move west of the Jordan River, right? Mm -hmm. And I will put mm -hmm. these, this is from a, another article in Middle East Monitor, um, mm -hmm. and yeah, has he, said that, you know, it's the, Israel is the state of the Jewish people, of the Jewish nation. They, the Arabs, can partake in it, but they have to understand that if they desire to have their own state within the state, that's unacceptable because they have 23 countries. So, you know, that kind of rhetoric where he's defining the Palestinians as sort of generic Arabs. Yes. Who could and just the, pick up and... Denying, yes. Right? Yeah, no, I'm saying denying the existence of many ethnicities and right. nationalities and religions, religions within the 23 Arab countries, actually. Well, yeah. precisely, Yeah, absolutely. Right? And, and I mean, like, it, 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 it's just, it's it's crazy because you think of all these genocides that took place where there were in places where there were countries for the people to flee to, like, you know, with the Pontic Greeks in Anatolia. Does that make the Greek genocide that happened in Anatolia alongside the Armenian genocide suddenly no longer a genocide because they had a country they could go to. Right. Uh, they like had they, Christian they had countries. Forever. They had many exactly. Christian countries where they yeah, could Yeah, there were many to. Christian countries. That they, so, but, but it's like, it doesn't, it has no, it doesn't, I think the most amazing thing is it shows a complete disregard for human lively, like life, for human life and human history and culture, which is not surprising considering that Israel, you know, it has this amazing dichotomy that it that it cultures where it simultaneously had these european people who came absorb a lot of the indigenous culture so they like were like oh well hummus is a food that all jewish people ate and not just you know people in this area but all jewish people ate hummus and all jewish people did this right all jewish people did that and they they in one way erased the culture that ha that that ashkenazis had in europe which was a really beautiful and deep and long culture and it absorbed some of the culture from the Mizrahim. But at, at, it's like a dual-sided, it was like um, absorbing with one hand and beating with the other. Because at the same time, they wanted to push anything away that had too much of uh, like this Middle Eastern influence. So they were taking in what was viewed as acceptable. So they were becoming just indigenous enough in their culture that they could maybe be viewed as people who had equal rights to the land, while at the same time, the people who had lived there, Palestinian Jewish people, Jordanian Jewish people, you know, and then later uh, with the pogroms, uh, the Iraqi Jewish people who came, the Iranian Jewish people who came, they uh, oppress them horribly and they, you know, they don't let them speak Arabic and they, you know, they don't let them um, express their cultures, right? 
And so it's this amazing, weird dichotomy that you don't really see in a lot of settler colonial countries um, because they, you know, they just suppress one culture instead of trying to absorb it to make themselves seem indigenous. Yeah, it's a it's such a complicated situation in in Israel Palestine with these identity issues, um, and again, you know, an identity that's seeking to claim indigeneity that has some claim to indigeneity, but that you know, in an effort to um, to create an exclusivist claim, has erased, as you said, Rafi, so many aspects of the Jewish diaspora experience, right? Um, and the beautiful civilization and culture that was completely destroyed by the mm-hmm. Holocaust in the process. So it's such a it's such a sad situation in Israel for everyone involved. But this attempt to kind of define to undefine or unacknowledge or unidentify Palestinians as Palestinians and in case mm-hmm. and instead identify them as Arabs is so incoherent and it's so inhumane as you say Rafi because you know in these in these processes of genocide and identity destruction it's not these it's not these invisible, abstract identities that get destroyed. It's the very concrete life, mm-hmm. everyday life mm-hmm. and culture and your commitments and your relationships and your families mm-hmm. and your communities that get destroyed. People don't experience genocide in the abstract, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. They they experience it in the, in the particular and the Nakba was a very particular loss of particular villages and particular people and particular memories and particular hor- historical sites, just as the land lost in 1967 was the loss of particular mm-hmm. things. And, I, you know, I just I don't understand where Israel thinks it's going with this um, bullying language, you know, that insists that the Palestinians are not who they they experience themselves to be but are instead mm-hmm. just these generic Arabs that we could just throw across these 23 states, as if those 23 states are going to welcome people with open arms, right? Um, yeah. And that and that these folks can then just pick up a life that is meaningful and authentic, you know, when mm-hmm. they're sent off to Egypt or wherever that they've never been to before, know nothing about and have no historical connection with. I don't understand. I don't understand where Israel no, thinks it's going with that. I really, I don't. It's so dehumanizing, and it really shows like that the system has been just founded and cultured on the dehumanization of this group. You know, mm-hmm. like all most, the vast majority of of people, citizens of Israel, ha- have served in the Israeli defensive slash the Israeli um, okay. um, occupation forces. And yeah. yeah, you know, as the stories that comes out of the IOF that we hear, you know, it, mm-hmm. it is something that just creates genocidal mentality towards Palestinians. Yeah, I've heard like, that from I've these, heard that yeah. from IDF veterans myself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes, like people from the IDF have come out and said mm-hmm. uh, publicly that the way that they have been uh, trained to see Palestinians as um, yeah. like non-human is genocidal mm-hmm. and um, sickening. Um, and I guess the point also, I want to make uh, one one more point, uh, sorry, with this article about the one state solution. 
which is um, well, it's it's kind of like two points that are both about um, the one state solution. Um, I guess the first point is that pal- for Palestinians, they are essentially, in a way, already living under one state. Yes. Like they have yeah. independent governments, right? But the governments don't have power. You know, they have power in the same way that maybe an autonomous region of the Ottoman Empire has power, right? Where mm-hmm. anything that they do can be immediately overruled without any question or any discussion by the larger governmental force. So they don't actually have that much, you know, autonomous rule. And their entire, all their movements are tracked and um, their livelihoods are managed. Their very lives, every individual life is managed. What, I mean, like it recently came out that Israeli, um, the Israeli government um, created a calorie base intake for deciding how many calories Gazans would be allowed to consume Hmm. so that they could not, you know, be tried for starvation, or be accused of starvation, oh, but so that they could still reduce the, the, the amount of food brought into Gaza enough wow. that these people would not have sufficient amounts of food, that they would not be considered starving. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, their lives are controlled in every aspect by the Israeli government already. And so, hmm. and the two-state solution, you know, with the with the establishment of the West Bank, that was what it was supposed to be. The Palestinians had agreed to that, and we already seen in the past historically that Israel has complete disregard for any sort of a two-state solution, and that they view it just as, you know, as the article said, just like you know, a a, a way of slow the putting off the eventual complete occupation as they see it right so the two-state solution to them is not an actual concrete state where there are borders that they're no longer allowed to attack but it's more of just like you know a putting off of the eventual attack and colonization of the remaining areas and um and so the one-state solution i think uh the way that i that i've read the what i've read about it and palestinians i've talked to they just see it as you know being able to return their their homes and for the places that have been destroyed, for them to be compensated either with property or monetarily um, through the government, there would be systems of government that would help, um, you know, facilitate this. Um, you know, they'd be allowed to move freely. They uh, would be equal in the eyes of the government, which right as of right now uh, defines itself as a state of not all of its citizens, but only the Jewish citizens. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so they would just... Problem. It is. So they would basically they would just um, become equal citizens. And, um, you know, the the thing I hear when I when I've talked to many Zionists and I've talked to many Palestinian liberation people and the Palestinians are just saying that they want to go home. And mm. the Zionists see that as an attack, just the simple idea of Palestinians moving into their neighborhoods, they view as an attack on their their like like a violent attack on themselves. Like oh. they it's it's. It's not even that they it's it's some weird thing where they hate the Palestinians, but and they simply just don't want to exist. with them. Like they hate them to the point that the idea of living alongside Palestinians is an idea that they equate with personal violence. Yeah, like I they mean, can't fat, they don't yeah. want to. Well, I think that, you know, so much of that is built built on defensiveness and fear. And it's a fear that was cultured by politicians over many, many decades as well. Um, you know, so that, so that, yeah, and the right of return sounds like an ethnic cleansing or genocide of Jews. 
And I think this is a real fear. And I think this is behind so much of the response that one hears from many Israeli citizens when it comes to the question of a one-state solution or mm -hmm. the liberation of Palestine. Um, and, you know, I think that this was something, Irena, that you were saying earlier, is that, you know, all of this points to the need for a really robust and long-term sort of reconciliation process that can convince Jews in Israel you know, and the international community, that there's not going to be a retributive form of cleansing, displacement, genocide against Jews in Palestine. And that requires, you know, working with Hamas so that it also kind of dismantles its genocidal language about Israel. And so all of these parties need to be part of some massively large peace building yes. exercise. Um, and one thing Which I want I to quickly say, facilitated by the outside world, it has um, to be. It has Israel to be. has showed that it is it is it is unwilling to the, to push, the, give even an inch on the idea of not even just Palestinian liberation, but merely Palestinian equality for yeah. the Israeli citizens that yeah. are Palestinian. Yeah, well, it's one of those things. We talk about this a lot, Eden. It's one of those situations where the um, powers that be on all sides, including in the international community, have some vested mm -hmm. interests in mm -hmm. a conflict. If a mm -hmm. conflict goes on long enough, the entire world is now part of this organism of conflict and has mm -hmm. adapted to it and adjusted to it, right? Mm -hmm. And and therefore, there are vested interests. There are parts of this organism that rely on the conflict to sustain themselves. And I think that's true of the kind of political class in Israel, it seems. Mm -hmm. um, and it's true yep. of, of, of some of the more extremist voices on the Palestinian side, it's true of much of the Middle East, and it's true of many um, countries in the international community, not least of which are Turkey and the United States. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so these are very important factors. Yeah, so we would need definitely some international buy-in to, uh, to a substantial, uh, substantially uh, reformist, right, if not somewhat revolutionary, new approach to life in common in Palestine. But I think one of, you know, my thoughts is I think the international community has left this conflict grow so much yeah. that it has reached to a point where I think they don't know what to do with it. Mm. Like it's, mm. it's to a point where, you know, there's imagine six, seven million people trying to return to a country actually and, yeah. and establishing uh, a society that would be equal to everyone and avoiding the levels of violence that the resentment towards the 73 years has caused. Yeah. So I think it, it does require, like, you know, you both were saying and the article was saying, really intelligent and, yeah. and, and willing minds to put... Um, to bring this conflict to an end and and somehow monitor the birth of a of a of a one state with a mixed or dual citizenship you know dual identities and with respect because you know i was thinking when you were saying elisa 
you were talking about and just to quickly to end I don't want to go too long but when you were talking about how the genocide destroys you know the 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 everyday life and it's you know it's good to remember that the palestinians from a religious perspective and a cultural perspective the palestinians and the jewish people living there had a good relationship yeah. actually yeah. and mm -hmm. the, the 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 similarities of the judaism as religion and islam are, are closer than those with christianity actually so this 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 uh, life of cooperation and solidarity that once existed was destroyed by this conflict. And, and I hope, you know, it's still in the DNA of people to remember that, that they, 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 they got along from outside the, the, you know, the political aspects of this, of this conflict. It's, it's a very com complex conflict, but at the same time, it's quite simple. You know, mm -hmm. when one thinks of it, it's simple. It's just... People were removed from their land and they want to return. And there is another state created and, and um, who has, you know, fear. People of the state have feared of being persecuted again. So it's yeah. kind of simple. But then all of the complexities of it and of the years, I think, of this so many years of allowing to yeah. Israel to create settlements and settlements and settlements and yeah. isolate Gaza and isolate yeah. small parts of the West Bank, it's, it has, it's, it has to, you know, it's very, very difficult solution, I think. But um, so it, the, I think the efforts of the entire world have to be put there. Truly, because what we're mm -hmm. really facing, I think, and this is my fear, and I think it's many people's fear, is that we're facing since Palestinians can't accept what they're being told to accept. It's actually impossible to demand of a people that yeah. they accept a life where they can't pray at Al-Aqsa Mosque, where, mm -hmm. you know, they in Gaza, where they have to live, you know, in conditions that, that are just horrific, even when there isn't war. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. Where they really have no freedom, where there are constant checkpoints, where they're being arrested en masse. You know, there was a little boy who was recently arrested for in um, the West Bank for having a Palestinian flag on his bicycle. Do you know where things mm -hmm. like that are going on? You cannot accept it. It's, it's unacceptable because you can't live mm -hmm. a peaceful life. You can't have your daily life. Mm -hmm. You can't express your culture without, without constant grievance. Um, you know, since they can't accept it, they will continue protesting. They will continue, mm -hmm. um, you know, fighting against it in one way or another. And at some point, where does this lead? I can only see it leading to sort of the mass murder stage of genocide, in this case mm -hmm. against the Palestinians, because Israel is so much more powerful. Mm -hmm. um, so this continuing on the way it is just creates more pain and, you know, the greater possibility of a mass murder type of genocide, uh, which really we have to try and prevent. Um, mm -hmm. Certainly. So let's hope. <laughs> let's hope. Thank you, Rafi, for sharing, you know, um, that, that article on the, on the one state solution. It's something we'll continue discussing in our podcast because certainly Israel is is a place of huge concern in the present, right? Mm -hmm. And and then also in the future. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing Irena and I saw is that, you know, one genocide leads to another genocide leads to another genocide. Violence begets violence in Iraq. Almost every group has had a genocide committed against it at some point mm-hmm. in history. And all this creates is more genocide in the future and a lot of grievance in the present. And nobody gains in the long run, even the nobody. so-called perpetrators mm-hmm. from the past. No, 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 no. You know, so if Israel is taken down a dark road over frustration about Palestinian protests, if it's taken down the dark road of mass murder, right, something similar to the Nakba, but even with larger death tolls, um, I don't think Israel would come out of that successful. And, mm-hmm. you know, so it doesn't no. serve anybody's interest to continue on this road. And often we hear that this sort of criticism of Israel is somehow anti-Semitic or hostile to Jews or, or hostile to Zionism. And one can fall out in different ways on that. But, um, but it's also, you know, can be an expression of concern about the future of Jewish life in Palestine um, because, you know, these sorts of conflicts tend to end up in, in some kind of mutual catastrophe. Yep. Like you said, violence always leads to more violence. So yeah. I hope, uh, really, I really hope that the international community sees these and tries to, you know, create a peaceful a peaceful um, reconciliation eventually, you know, yeah. that will take years, but yeah. I hope they do. Yeah. I, I mean, and this is, I think this is a point. This is, this could be a starting point. Mm-hmm. This, this yeah. you know, it was all over the media. It was yeah. all over the news. One could see the media switching as well, you know, trying, not all of it, but mm-hmm. trying to show what was occurring and, and the mm-hmm. situation in Gaza has been, you know, irresistible anymore. Like people, two million people living in in a, in a very tiny strip of land is it's impossible. It's absolutely impossible, and that has to be solved now. There's yeah. there's no time. There's now. no time. So, it has to be solved now. Absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. It cannot continue. And as you say, no. Irena, hopefully the world is recognizing that. In the U.S., we really see... I was talking to someone in England who was saying that he doesn't see it in England, the shift. But in the U.S., okay. I see the shift. The New York Times, the New York Times published on its front page on Friday um, all the photos of the children killed in this recent war in Gaza. Uh, and that is oh, a wow. huge change. I mean, that's that's enormous. And I do think people are recognizing... Um, that something um, momentous has just happened, that things were coming together in a very dark way in Israel. We know about settler colonialism. Do you know we know about the genocidal nature of a lot of Israel's policy towards Palestinians, but things were coming together in an even darker, more radical way Mm -hmm. in the past month and a half. And I think the world woke up and recognized that. So you're right, Irena, maybe this will be a moment for some serious mm-hmm. Hopefully. Um, efforts. Change. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I hope so. Some serious change. I hope so, yeah. So we can visit a peaceful land. Wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't <laughs> that be, be great? Nice. I do That's feel like I do. Land for everyone, right, also. Exactly. I mean, there's so mm-hmm. many. I do feel that the upcoming generation has a very good, Rafi, your generation 
has a very good sense of these things, just a totally different sensibility about colonialism, about capitalism, about um, the kind of rigid ways in which identities have been formed over the past 500 years in the world. And I think there's a real liberatory potential there that, that hasn't existed internationally in the same way. And I think that some of the options that are being put forth from members of your generation are just better than what we've seen up to this point. Do you know, up to this point, the major um, ideology of protest has been communism, right? And we've know, we know from the 20th century that that can go down very dark roots, right? Um, yeah. As well as more profitable ones. But your generation seems to be mixing a notion of justice, right? Mm -hmm. And individual mm -hmm. rights, with also yes, a sense yeah. of oh, equality, mm -hmm. right? With also equality. a sense of economic justice and mm -hmm. structural reform in a way that I actually haven't seen and I don't know what to call it, but it's, um, it's really great and it's worldwide. We see it in young people all over the world. Let's hope. Yeah, yeah let's hope. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> I, I hope something changes with, with my generation. Yeah, so. me too. Yeah. On behalf of your generation, <laughs> do you have any last comments? <laughs> Uh, no, <laughs> I mean, uh, I guess, uh, hopefully there will be a free Palestine sometime in the future. And, um, don't forget to, uh, keep, keep, uh, Artsakh in your minds and in your hearts and, uh, keep up to date on the news in Armenia from an Armenian American. It's very important. Please, please. We need more people batting for us. We really do. Uh, please. Well, great. Just one article. If you could just share one article. It'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful, right. Rafi, you're wonderful. Well, thank you guys so much. This was lovely. This was a long yeah, and you. lovely discussion. Thanks for our listeners for sticking with us this far. As always, we encourage you to be in touch with us, to send us questions, to send us ideas for podcasts, to send us criticism, to send us comments, and if you are so inclined to consider subscribing to our podcast on Patreon, all of our podcast episodes are free to the public because we want to raise um, the issue of genocide, to pre of genocide prevention as far and as wide as we can. But... Uh, we do require some funding to keep our podcast initiative and the other initiatives of the Iraq Project for Genocide Prevention going. So there's more information on all of this at our Patreon site. You could just go to Patreon and search for Iraq Project or search for the Anti-Genocide Coffee Break. We are also on Spotify and iTunes, and you can also find us at our website, IraqProject.org. We wish you all a wonderful week ahead. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.